And so we like having both a general partner interest and a limited partner interest. And we use that limited partnership as the starting point or the, you know, the LP as the starting point for clients as that holding company or management company. And then eventually we just add a very strong asset protection trust or bridge trust to the top of it to own that limited partnership. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. It's what we're all about here, investing in real estate, taking control of our finances and our wealth generation moving into the future. Today, our guest is Brian Bradley from BTB Legal. Brian is a returning guest in the, from to the show. He is uh, an asset protection attorney. In the past, we talked about using offshore trusts to protect our assets once we get to a certain net worth threshold that can help us shield us uh, from some liability and some risks in that case. Today, we're talking about a few different things still in the asset protection space. That is his specialty after all. Uh, we talk about the difference between limited partnerships and LLCs. That's a big question when it comes to real estate investing. We talk about layering this different asset protection uh, structures and strategies and how we can think about that as we grow our net worth and get more and more wealthy. When do we need to start thinking about adding different layers? What do we need to think about as far as different states and where we locate our LLCs versus our real estate investments? A lot of details in this. It's going to be a great conversation for you. You're going to love it. If you're new to the show and you're an Apple Podcast user, please take a quick second, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling in my belly because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you do enjoy the show, do look it up, the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I appreciate that so much. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. If you ever want to have a conversation about real estate syndication investing, just jump over to PassiveWealthStrategy.com. Go to our Passive investing club section, submit your info, and you can book a call with me to have a talk about what your goals are and how we may be able to help. Appreciate you tuning into the show. Without any further ado, here we go with Brian Bradley. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks, Taylor, for having me back. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun. You know, we'll be jumping around different topics, I think, as well. Um, and maybe recapping some on asset protection and diving into some new areas. But I definitely think we're going to have a good talk again this time. And I'm looking forward to, you know, dropping whatever knowledge that I can on to your listeners and just realize, you know, I'm not anybody's legal guru. I'm just, you know, like what I do. And hopefully the thoughts and opinions that I have will help some people. Absolutely. I certainly hope so as well. Now, we did talk about uh, asset protection last time around, a particular strategy uh, using uh, overseas accounts, things like that. But we're going to kind of touch on different things here today. Just give us a quick recap about what asset protection can do for us as real estate investors. Yeah, absolutely. So asset protection, you know, like we were talking about before, it's it's modern estate planning. And essentially what you're doing is just placing a legal barrier between your assets and a potential creditor, you know, before it's needed. And that's really like the key word. It has to get done and set up beforehand, before you're getting sued, before you're under attack. And that's it. 
it's just a barrier, like a safe for your gold or guns or other valuables. You know, anything of value you want to put behind that legal barrier and out of your personal name so that it's not easily attached with a lien, um, you know, or reached. Uh, you know, you want to just like the rich, you're all investing to try to become rich and wealthy. And I love the Tony Robbins saying, um, you know, success leaves clues. The rich don't own things in their personal names. Their businesses do, their estate plans do, but not their like family estate plans or asset you know, protection plans do. They just get the beneficial use and enjoyment out of them while separating out the liability. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And there's just different layers and different you know, stages in life and investing that you can come into. You know, last time we kind of talked about the Taj Mahal of asset protection, like a bridge trust combining an offshore trust and a domestic trust into this really cool hybrid. And then how that works, lower level asset protection, you know, you got foundations of LLCs and limited partnerships. There's distinctions between those and pros and cons and how you layer them up. And there's different financial net worth markers on where you enter at which one. Like if you're just starting out, you're going to be starting out in an LLC and insurance. You're going to outgrow that. Then you're going to move up to another layer, limited partnerships. Then you're going to outgrow that. And then you're going to move up to the big guns, asset protection trust. And like all of these things, there's different flavors of ice cream. So I wonder what you mean by you're going to outgrow, say, LLCs, for example. What does that really mean? Because there, as far as I know, there's not like a, a legal maximum of an LLC can say only have such and such a value or revenue or anything like that. But maybe it's a, a practicality or something like that kind of standpoint. So what do you mean by outgrow these certain structures? Yeah. So you look at it from like, you know, one, what can you afford? So if you're just starting out and you you don't have much personal risk and liability from a professional standpoint, and you're not a surgeon, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not a CPA. So you don't have much personal liability from your profession job. And you're just starting out with your first property. I will not come and say, okay, hey, I'm going to charge you $30,000 for an asset protection trust for a bridge trust and a full setup. You're just spending unwisely on your money. I call it like spending stupid money. You know, um, like it just makes a bad decision. So you would start out small with an LLC. Then as you grow, you don't want to be stuffing, you know, millions of dollars all in one LLC. You want to space out uh, liability and number of units. And then you kind of have to balance between the, the amount of money and equity that's in that LLC with the number of units and find the right match. And so we try to keep the equity under $500,000. In some states, it's really impossible to do. You know, like if you're investing in New York or California, you know, like that's, you know, one property in those states is going to be almost 1 million. So what we try to do is just match the amount of equity net that's in, you know, LLC with the risk that we are willing and acceptable to risk. And then um, another one to look at is the states. You don't want to mix different state assets all in one LLC. Meaning if you're investing in Tennessee and Alabama and Ohio, you don't want to be putting all of those into one LLC because then you're taking a bunch of different state assets and state laws. And if one of those assets explode, then you're having that state issue and problem affecting other state assets in other states. So you want to separate out assets from states in the different state LLCs, as well as manage the amount of net value, you know, equity in each LLC, as well as the number of units or problems and risk in the LLC. Um, so as that adds up over time, you have one property, two properties, get to four properties, you're going to eventually outgrow the, you know, the, the beneficial limited liability of that, that LLC. Then you're going to need another one. 
and then another one. Then once your net worth hits probably around $500,000 net, it would make more sense to clean up your system and have all those LLCs owned by a management company like a limited partnership. So all your individual K-1s of those LLCs flow directly into one taxable company, a limited partnership. So now you only have one taxable, one tax filing, not 10. Mm, okay. So that does uh, save some of the complexity. Now you mentioned these different uh, different states, things like that. And there's there are ways you can right have an LLC in say Wyoming or Colorado or whatever, but your asset is not actually uh, in that state, it's you know somewhere else. Does that you know help avoid some of that complication, or would you say that's a great question? <laughs> yeah, how do you break yeah. that out? So that goes into some of the misconceptions of LLCs, and this is some of the big ones that I like to talk about that no one's really being told about. And this goes to um, the confusion of where to even set these things up in like chasing charging order protection. And so it's like, do I go to Delaware? Do I go to Wyoming? Do I go to Texas and Nevada? And when it comes to real estate, it really comes down to an issue of just what are you holding and what state is it located at? Because we have to realize real estate is different. It's not a business. You own it as an extension of yourself. And so that's what you're using these LLCs for is holding companies, not operating out of. So let's say, for example, it's California real estate that you own and you're a California resident. And I'm going to pick on California a lot during these examples, just because a lot of people live in California, a lot of them invest in other states or in California, and it's a very asset protection unfriendly state. So I think it just hits a lot of nails on like for everybody to kind of relate to. So in this situation, let's say you set up a Wyoming LLC because like you read it on the internet and your or your CPA or someone told you to go ahead and set up this Wyoming LLC, mm-hmm. but you're a California resident owning assets not in Wyoming. Like let's say it's just California. So what you've done is convert your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California because you just placed a key piece of property that's in California in that LLC. And you have to actually register that out-of-state Wyoming LLC as doing business in California. Like you legally have to do that. And so what you did, like I said, is just convert that out-of-state Wyoming LLC to a California you know, LLC and you're paying franchise tax in the state of California. And this is because you know a judge in California or any other state, they don't care that your LLC is in Wyoming you know, or Delaware. What they care about is, is it doing business in California? Because it's done this big legal word called availed itself of the protection and laws of California. That's the state the asset is in. That's the state the injury or damage occurred in. That's the state you're getting sued through because that's where the asset is at. So it's going to be that state's laws that are going to apply. You know, their damage laws, their tort laws, their personal injury laws. Um, This is called outside liability from the asset, not an internal business dispute like you and I dissolving a company and we're suing each other because, you know, now we hate each other and the company's failed. You don't take Wyoming or Delaware tort and damage laws with you to other states. So just by simply owning an out-of-state LLC, you have to do this this legal thing called registering that LLC as doing business in that state that you live in. Like you legally have to do this. And so by registering it, you've now availed yourself of the privileges and laws of that state that you're a resident of. So now you just gave California the jurisdictional right over that Wyoming LLC. And there's a really great case that proves this point. It's called Indian Palms Country Club Association versus Anchor Bank came out in 2015. And this case lays out all the multiple, multiple legal standards that you'd have to meet 
to successfully beat a piercing the corporate veil argument and jurisdictional selections. And this is uh, someone who actually set up an out-of-state Wyoming LLC. You would not meet any of these legal standards whatsoever. And so essentially by not meeting one of the legal standards, you now are gonna have your veil pierced and you just gave California legal jurisdiction over that LLC. So for assets that are real estate, I recommend using the state that the real estate is located in because you're not gaining anything by using another state. You're just doubling your maintenance costs, having to pay the personal agent of service. And in Wyoming, that can get expensive in Delaware. So just keep it simple and then properly layer and then move up to the second layer of a protection, which would be like a limited partnership. And then have your K-1s of those LLCs flow into one easily managed entity. Okay, so I think this really gets into the next topic I wanted to hit on. You mentioned limited partnerships. I wanted to learn about the differences between the two of those because they both say limited, but it's yeah. a limited liability company versus limited partnership. And it sounds like they offer different uh, features and benefits and all that, different costs. Yeah, so it's a great question. And so this goes to like, you know, when we're talking about different layers of asset protection, you know, you got three layers. Think about like going out skiing is cold. You know, you have your base layer, that's going to be LLCs. Um, then you're going to have your second layer, like your merino wool sweater or like a cardigan for ladies. Um, you know, that's going to keep you nice and warm, a little bit looser on the body. That's going to be a management company. And preferably, we want it to be a limited partnership for the reasons I'm going to get into next. And then you're going to have like your outer cold, cold weather, bad waterproof layer. That's going to be your asset protection trust. And so limited partnerships, they're like LLCs. And they also have some charging order protection. And I like them better because they have a very strong delineation between the managing partner called the general partner, the GP, and the minority partner who does not, you know, like, so the LP portion of that. And think of it like a split personality, you know, so they have two different classes of ownership that have different functions, which LLCs do not have. And so we like having both a general partner interest and a limited partner interest and we use that limited partnership as the starting point or the, you know, the LP as the starting point for clients as that holding company or management company. And then eventually we just add a very strong asset protection trust or bridge trust to the top of it to own that limited partnership. And it's really the combination of the two that work together that we capitalize on. And so just some of the very specific reasons I prefer limited partnership and specifically an Arizona limited partnership over, for example, a Wyoming LLC or Delaware LLC or any LLC as that second layer of protection are you have exclusive charging order protections in Arizona as the only remedy for creditors of a partnership. You have an actual statutory, and this is really important because statutes are higher priority of law than like case law. Um, because they're actually written down and they're not left for open interpretations by other judges. So you have an actual statutory distinction between the general partners and the limited partners by statute. And this is better than LLCs because LLCs can only do this by an operating agreement. And then the court will have to interpret that. So you're leaving that operating agreement open to the interpretation of a judge who will change his mind depending on the day and what he ate for breakfast. <laughs> and so, and, and you're seeing it, you know, like judges, you know, are not following legal precedent anymore. Um, especially in certain risky States, um, like, you know, like California, like all the East coast, West coast States. Um, and so we also have ARS sec section 29-333, which specifically allows for a limited partnership to make what's called this really fancy thing called a unilateral withdrawal 
from a limited partnership on a predefined event of duress, meaning like a lawsuit. And so this is unique only to an Arizona limited partnership, but this is exactly what you need to, to allow an asset protection trust, like that top third layer, to disconnect from that holding company during a duress or, you know, duress or a lawsuit. And this can only be done with limited partnerships. You can't do this at all with LLCs without starting to expose yourself into a fraudulent transfer argument, which we'll break down later on what that even means, like fraudulent transfers. And so just those already are really a good list of why I prefer limited partnerships. But then a few more, like the AZ limited partnership is perpetual, you know, whereas every other state has an annual report and filing fees for LLCs that you have to maintain every year. Um, Arizona doesn't require listing of the limited partners. You don't need to list the GP partners at all by by nature. You know, limited partners, they're completely private. So you get some built-in privacy statutorily with that. And then for tax filing purposes, which is really important, your limited partnership cannot be a disregarded entity, whereas LLC single members are all disregarded entities coming up to you, which is great for tax purposes, but it's horrible for um, litigation and liability because though it's disregarded to you from taxes, that means it's also disregarded to you for lawsuits and liability. And so um, LLCs just with one member, they're automatically considered, like I said, a disregarded entity. And that's not very good for liability issues and lawsuits. So, um, you know, limited partnerships by nature cannot be disregarded entities. So how does that um, work for tax purposes? I mean, you are you getting hit with double taxation in that case since it's not a disregarded entity? How can you manage that? No. And so the, the tax filings flow towards you. So you're going to be, you know, all asset protection is tax neutral. It's just you're playing, you get to play off of the different ownership classes of limited partnerships to where eventually you want your asset protection trust to own that limited partnership. And then all you are is the managing member of it. Mm, okay. Okay. And as you get, as you get larger, the, the cash flows or the, the income flows like upward up the structure to the asset protection trust and then to you, or I guess just- So the income would stay out? connected to the management company, like your business bank account there, and you would just pay yourself disbursements out of that in your own private account. But what owns everything eventually is your bridge trust because, or your asset protection trust, because it owns that, that management company. So you're the managing member of that limited partnership, and then you're the beneficiary and creator of your own asset protection trust. And so that way you maintain control of your assets, you're managing your assets, you're the beneficiary of your own trust that you created. Um, it's just that trust owns a limited partnership. And then that trust, eventually you want to have, like when you get about 1 million plus unprotected net, you want to be able to benefit and play off of other jurisdictions, you know, and other countries, uh, lack of recognition of U.S. court orders and judgments. Hmm. Okay. Once you're getting pretty big now, you mentioned uh, one thing in there that I also wanted to cover, fraudulent transfers. And I know you know there's probably folks out there listening that maybe own a couple of rental, pro- rental properties or they got started because you know, they lived in a house and moved out yeah. of it, but they kept it titled in their own name. Maybe they're not going to send it to an LLC. And what are some important considerations there when transferring you know, personal assets into a business's name, especially when it comes to uh, liability and all yeah. Those so when you're transferring assets, you know, like the big issue and the thing that's always going to be argued is going to say like, well, this was a fraudulent transfer or, you know, avoidable transaction, what it's called now. 
And it's often one of the most asked issues with clients. And it's also one of the most misunderstood of what they are, because you're playing off of like different definitions of like fraud, fraudulent transfers, and how they all work. And so to break these concepts down, a fraudulent transfer or a conveyance is a transfer in ownership of an asset. So like transferring your real estate made for little or no consideration, meaning like the other party really didn't get anything of value in return for it at all. And then here's a caveat of it. It has to be done with the intent to hinder, delay, or defeat the claim of a creditor. So the person is suing you. So you have to have the intent to you know, hinder or delay their claim against you. The key word here is intent. So in other words, the courts are looking at what was your state of mind when you trans when that transfer was made, you know, and this state of mind also has to be combined with an actual effect, you know, that the transfer actually delayed or hindered or defrauded a creditor. So if you're doing this stuff in the middle of a lawsuit, obviously, you know, here comes the issue with that is you're kind of too far down the rabbit hole to be transferring assets around. And so if you don't have that state of mind, um, and you don't have a lawsuit coming at you right now, and you're setting all this stuff up and transferring assets during time of peace, there's no fraudulent conveyance. And so this is the importance of being proactive and planning before you need it. Now I want to compare this to fraud, which is completely different. So fraud is an intentional misrepresentation of a material fact to induce someone to act or stop or refrain from acting to their detriment. So what is a really just fancy thing of saying? There's two different definitions. One's a fraudulent transaction conveyance. Another one is fraud and fraud is a crime. And so fraudulent transfers are not. And what we call a fraudulent transfer is just a supplemental or secondary proceeding where you're getting sued. All right. And the person suing you starts finding out what assets you own um, by disclosures and discovery that the court will order. And if you're discovered to have made a transfer for little or no consideration within a certain amount of time, generally about five years, some states like California is like extreme, like a 10 year look back period. That other party, the person suing you is going to ask that judge to undo all those transfers and say, bring that money back. And that's the remedy because now they're going to have you undo that transfer to give the creditor access to it. And so this is where the importance of jurisdiction and how it relates to fraudulent conveyance really comes into play. The reason why, for example, an offshore trust is so powerful in this regard is that in order to undo a transfer, that court has to have the power to tell the person that did the transfer to, you know, the person that you gave that asset to, to give it back. And so any court in the U.S. doesn't have that power to tell an offshore of Cook Islands trustee what to do or to tell them to give that asset back. Uh, They're just going to tell them, no, go pound sand. We are the Cook Islands. We are statutorily non-recognizing any country's court order or judgments. Your U.S. court orders and judgments have no reach here whatsoever. Now compare this anything to the U.S. Any system that's purely domestic in the U.S. does not have that ability to say no. And this is because we have the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. And so that's the power of adding an offshore component. Eventually, when it makes financial sense and you have over like one million plus of assets and high risk, high liability is you want that power to say no. Okay, so that does help that that the Cook Islands example, they just say no, not acceptable. But that is a, a bit concerning that many states have a, a five-year look back. And I think- 10-year, California, California 10. 10 year. 
That's, I mean, that's a long time. That's forget intent. I mean, five years is just a while. It's a long time. And there's this, this important case, Kilker versus Steelman in California came out in 2012 and approved by the court of appeals. And so it was this, uh, pool, pool construction guy, um, made this pool uh, for this company five years before ever being sued, made a pool for a residential pool. It cracked, got sued for it. Five years later, he created this asset protection trust five years before any of this happened ended up getting sued. And so Kilker versus Steelman, the court said, well, you work in construction and like you should know eventually sometime in your career, like you're going to get sued. And so we're going back in and that completely changed the landscaping of asset protection because what Californians were doing was going to Nevada and creating Nevada Asset Protection Trust. And the court said, you're not a resident of Nevada, too bad. So we're not recognizing it. And even though you created this five years before you were being sued, you should have known and foresaw a possibility that you may get sued at some point in the future of owning a business. And so California, that case, Kilker versus Steelman, completely destroyed a functional you know, asset protection trust for California residents. So there's a very, very, very fine line of what we have to do for California residents, which is eventually adding that offshore Cook Islands escape. Or I'm also, you know, reading between the lines, just move out of California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even still then, now you're, you're getting cases where just purely domestic trust, even if you're a resident of them, are starting to get pierced. Um, and then people now are buying assets all over the, you know, wherever the next deal is. So you're just buying state by state wherever you're at. So, you know, the one, the good thing about our country, you know, full faith and credit clause and states having state rights is also one of the things that you know weakens asset protection here in the U.S. is the full faith and credit clause. You can't run from judgments, and even if it's a fraudulent, wrongful judgment or an overcoverage judgment, you know where you're getting these extreme damages. Like there was just this case in Florida, um, of all places, Florida. There was this uh, guy, this family who owned an Airbnb. All right, Florida and this man just came out. Of, what's that? A Florida man owned an Airbnb. Keep on an Airbnb, rented it out. The guy that he rented it to, I guess, was like pounding bottles of whiskey starting at like two in the afternoon. Decided at like 1.30 or two in the morning to do a header into a shallow pond, broke his neck, became a quadriplegic, sued the owner of the property, and then got an $11 million judgment award. Oh, man. And, and then Florida. Like you would expect to hear that in California. And so this is Florida. And so this is where it's starting to come to, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what state you're a resident of now, you need to start, you know, looking at stronger layers of asset protection. I mean, how can you even, uh, I mean, that's a, there's probably details to the case, but, you know, there's always. Uh, no, they always... just said it was negligence because he allowed a low, a low water level pond to develop on his property. And so it was oh. negligence on him. And it's like, okay, but the guy was like, had to drink like two bottles of whiskey all day long and then decided to go take a header into a pond. I wonder if it's, if it had been a pool, if they had, they would have found the same thing. I mean, shoot, you can still dive into shallow water in a pool. Exactly. And it's like, at some point you're going to, you should be responsible for the negligence of your own decisions. Yeah, totally agree. Well, interesting. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars 
placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Brian, I've normally got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before you've answered those questions before. Got three new ones for our awesome returning guests. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. All right. First one, what is your favorite personal book? Not a business book, but your favorite book to read for personal enjoyment. Yeah, that's a great one. I really like The Alchemist. And so it's a great... Great personal journey book, you know, through the eyes of like a shepherd who's on his personal legend and trying to, you know, find his treasure. And like, I'm not going to ruin the book story for you, but if you like investing, it also like kind of hits on, on those, you know, sleeves as well. And it's told, it's a really quick read, very easy read. And you're going to, you know, uh, fall in love with the story of the book real fast. And you'll start, you know, figuring out your own personal legend. Nice. Nice. Well, we had your favorite personal book, but now we get to the question that I think is a little more common on these types of shows. What is your favorite business book? Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I really like the second Robert Kiyosaki book, like, you know, the cash flow quadrant, ah. um, which is, you know, not rich dad, poor dad, but then he breaks down the principles even farther, farther down in the cash flow quadrant. So I think that's a really good one. Um, right, right there. Yeah. And I like banker's code because I like investing more like a bank. Nice, nice. I have to admit, I have not read cash flow quadrant. I'm going to put that one on my list. That one's quite popular. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, a question I think that many of us are thinking about these days, especially seems like the pandemic's going to go on forever, but it will end someday. Where's the next place you're going once things have really opened up after COVID? Yeah, I, I'm a toss up between two places, Japan or Iceland. And I haven't, you know, like I, I really want to go to one or the other, but you know, like obviously like Japan right now seems like out of the question because of, you know, COVID variants now. And, you know, so I, I'm leaning more towards Iceland. Fair enough. I mean, as we record this, I think I read earlier today that France is banning non-vaccinated U.S. visitors. Vaccinated people can still get in, but we'll see if that even changes later on. Who knows? Exactly. And so I, I've been doing more just domestic traveling and you know, you know, visiting family and more low-key stuff. But I'm looking definitely looking forward and itching to get back into some international travel. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. It's great, been great talking with you once again and getting into a different aspect of asset protection for real estate investors. If folks want to get in touch, if they want to reach out, they want to ask some questions about asset protection or have a conversation about your services, where can they track you down? Yeah, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. And I use it more as an educational resource for that. Um, a lot of case law, um, good educational videos, tons of frequently asked questions section there. 
Um, or they can just email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. And, you know, I'm pretty responsive. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you for coming back on the show. It's been great talking with you once again to everybody out there. If you're enjoying the show and you use Apple Podcasts, please take a moment, leave us a rating and review on the show. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast uh, ecosystem there. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.